The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Today's show is brought to you by Work Life with Adam Grant, a podcast from TED. Our work lives and world have changed dramatically in recent weeks. And if you're looking to explore the science of making work not suck in these trying times, you should check out Work Life with Adam Grant. This season, you'll learn how to procrastinate less with Margaret Atwood and how small wins can help you fight burnout. New episodes come out on Tuesdays. I know I'll be listening. Listen to Work Life with Adam Grant wherever you get your podcasts. From the editorial team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday, our show about the changing nature of work and how that work is changing us. So this spring, before everything changed, I was supposed to interview Arlen Hamilton at the Out in Tech conference. Arlen's a VC, a venture capitalist. She invests in people of color and LGBT people and women. She's recently written a book, and I love the title. It's called It's About Damn Time all about turning being underestimated into your greatest advantage. And Out in Tech is one of my very favorite events. Out in Tech is this group of about 40,000 queer, trans, and non-binary tech leaders. They're role models for those of us who are queer, like me. When the quarantine began, this was one of the events I was most sad to miss. And then I realized we didn't have to miss it. We could still hold the interview on LinkedIn Live. So in April, we did our very first Hello Monday Live. More than 100 people joined me to talk with Arlen. Here's an edited version of our conversation. So how did you get into tech? Ooh, well, I had worked my way up from uh, wanting to be working on indie tours for musicians and wanting to be in the big leagues. I'd worked my way up to production coordinator and road manager for some major artists in my 20s and I was just entering the 30s and became very curious about this Silicon Valley I'd been hearing so much about and wanted to start my own company because I had started these small projects and other companies along the way that had turned into something, but I didn't quite know what I was doing at the time. So I wanted to learn as much as I could and started reading and um, listening to everything I could like podcasts and, and interviews like this. And um, then I realized that 90% plus of all venture funding was going to straight white men. I am, I don't know if you can tell, but I'm not a straight white man. Um, And that seemed weird to me. So I said, well, I think a lot of these guys would agree with me that doesn't make much sense if only a third of the country population is receiving 90% of the funding. So that led me on this deep journey of exploration and and that led me to saying, you know what, instead of starting my own company, let me go ahead and see if I can raise money to invest in other companies. Because if I can't help level the playing field, it won't really matter if I have my own company or not, if now, there's not hundreds of them behind me and next to me. Uh, now, Arlen, that figure that you referenced is alarming. Uh, as somebody who has covered technology, written about technology for 20 years, I wish I could tell you it was surprising. It wasn't when I read it in your book, but it is alarming. Uh, The thing that really got me, though, was that uh, you said that one-fifth of 1% of all venture capital in the U.S. goes to Black women. Yes. That is a really narrow vertical. 
Um, knowing this going into this, Arlen, um, what what made you think that this was the right field for you to break through in? I knew that if you gave me enough time and I could be the resource, I could be the, the, the asset, if you gave me enough time, I could learn what I needed to know. And to be frank with you, I was looking into this world and I said, well, I see the players who are involved and none of them seem like they were, you know, geniuses. It seems like if you take enough time, enough interest, enough passion, you can kind of build up to understanding. And I mean, you have to, I had to, and I think you would have to have this incredible mission behind it to really stay in the game as long as I have under the circumstances that I, that I built backstage. What was your front door to getting into this? Who are the people who helped you? What were the, the events that really launched you? Sam Altman at Y Combinator, who was president of Y Combinator at the time, he, he made it possible for me to go check out a women in tech event uh, at the top of 2015. I also made my way to Silicon Valley from Texas uh, spring of 2015 to a Stanford a workshop that was being held by 500 startups at the time. And Beji Yang was a big help there. I met my first investor there. So that was important. And then, but I, after that spent a lot of time homeless and it, 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 there was a lot in between. And then my first investor was a woman named Susan Kimberlin, who is an angel investor in Silicon Valley, who saw what I was doing, talked to me for several weeks and said, you know, I'm, I'm not sure what you are going to make of this, but I believe in what you're saying. And I think that you're going to make something happen. And I want to be part of that. I like to think of it as like running a marathon and having someone stick their hand out and give you that water at, at the mile marker. You know, you, you, you sometimes forget about that. They're going to be coming up and you hope that they are, but they give you that, that nourishment for the next mile. And I definitely had that. Um, and, uh, and, and then that became more and more investors, but it really has been this uphill, slow battle, and that's very important to remember. You know, I think that people often think of venture capital as um, difficult to understand. There's a lot of terminology. There's a lot of structure. Finance can be a little bit intimidating just generally as a topic if you haven't been introduced to it in a formal way, and you just kind of went for it. So yeah. Is there some secret that you actually know about venture capital that um, that the, the rest of us who are a little afraid of it just don't understand yet? I don't know where it comes from, really, but I just don't think there's any room that we are not allowed to go into. I don't I feel like if you give me enough time, if you give most of us enough time, we can do almost anything. And so venture for me, again, I, I, I don't have a reverence for it. I don't look up to it as if it's some sort of fix all or the end all. It's the only option for me. It was an amazing tool that I if I could learn enough about and if I could uh, show my value w enough that I could wield that tool. And so I don't know. I don't think that there is any magic behind the scenes portion of it. It really did take me years and years and years to understand, to study. I still to this day spend hours a day learning about venture capital so that I am up to date as much as possible. So that's the secret is to, to just keep executing, get into the field, you know, as Brene Brown talks about, get into the arena. I don't think being just a student of it was enough. That's why I've invested in more than 100 companies to actually go through it, make mistakes, stand back up and keep going. But Arlen, I, I wanted to go back to 2015, which in retrospect is really not that long ago. That is five years ago. 
Um, and at that point, you did not have backstage capital yet. But you had this, I think of it as a, a smart life hack, which is that you had a habit of writing headlines for yourself. And so you wrote the headline for what you were doing. Do you, do you happen to remember what that headline was? I wrote Arlen Hamilton invests in 100 companies led by underrepresented founders. And I put the date as 2020, even down to like studying headlines to see how long they usually are. So something between 12 and 14 words was like the lengthiest. And I wrote dozens, if not hundreds of headlines for myself. Uh, but that was one of them, one of the main ones and, and reached 100 companies by May of 2018. Once you hit 100 companies, what did you begin to understand about venture capital that you hadn't known going into it? Hmm. I mean, I think I was just, it was just reconfirmed that these companies were out there. We saw about 5,000 or so companies to reach the 100. Uh, 5,000 companies led by women, people of color, LGBTQ founders. And I was being told just three years prior to that. So in 2015, I was being told these companies don't even exist. So of the 5,000, maybe 20% or so were venture backable and 2% we invested in. It reaffirmed this idea that I had even back in Pearland, Texas, when I was just looking in and saying, it doesn't, it, does, it stands to reason that because there are so many others in the country, because we're all intelligent beings, because we all have these different uh, assets to ourselves, it stands to reason that the, that straight white men don't have uh, innovation cornered by any measure and not as a diss to them, because again, they are some of the, most of my investors are straight white men. They were, <laughs> they believe this too. They, they thought it was strange too. So I, I just learned that. And I learned that there's uh, so much potential that's untapped and overlooked. And, uh, oh, here's a question from the stream. Um, Arlen. So this is Robert. He's asking, in order to get into the field of investing, what are some key points or attributes you look for before investing? It's a lot of art more than science. So that's really important to, th to hear. I know a lot of people say it, but really hear that because a lot of times investors, it's all about timing. It's about timing for you, but it's also about timing for them. For instance, at Backstage, we, we are not able to invest all year round. We usually have to raise and earn that capital bit by bit, or I'll put in my personal capital to, to offset it. And we'll do that. And then we'll end up investing in 20 to 20 to 30 companies that year, a small amount of money relative. Uh, but it will happen within maybe three or four months of the year. So you, yeah. we have a rolling application process. So it's about timing for the found, for the funder and for the founder. Sometimes I'll meet a founder and all they need is about six more months of development. And then they'll be perfect for what, where we are with how we're looking at companies. They're looking for someone who has passion coupled with focus. If you only have focus or you only have passion, those are not enough. Passion can be unwieldy. Focus can be stringent and not give you enough fuel to keep going. But if you have both at the same time, you can be unstoppable. So I'm looking for someone who reminds me of myself. I'm pattern matching just like most investors do. I'm just pattern matching with a different set of values and a different set of a different amount of experience to, to look in on. What do you mean when you say pattern matching? Pattern matching is, is basically, it's not necessarily necessarily a good or bad thing. It's just a thing that happens, is, which is when an investor looks at a company and looks at a founder 
too and says, what does this company on paper, what does this founder by profile tell me based on what I know from the past that has worked? What can I surmise from that? And a lot of times that has you having people who have billions of dollars under management, but they have a lot of time, time them saying out loud for other people to hear, I look for white men or I look for nerdy young guys or I look for a guy in a hoodie, all those things which are kind of, you know, they're, they're, they're a barrier to so many people. So I'm pattern matching, but I'm also, I'm pattern matching with the question, what happens when a gay black woman who has Rona hair pattern matches? Let's get to some of the questions that address uh, the way that the world is changing now with the coronavirus, with the quarantine, with the shift in the economy and what that might mean for startups Um, So Olivia asks, what skills do you think founders need to learn to be successful in uh, in the market post corona? I talk a lot about this in the book um, about resilience and about creativity. These are two separate things that are going to come into come in handy right now in this moment. And also this idea of patience. I don't believe personally that we're going to be out of this for several months, if not a year or two. And it's going to be different even when we are out of it, quote unquote. So it there needs to be the shift in you if as soon as possible. It's okay if it takes a little while because I think self-care is also important. But the shift of it, let's let's plan for if this is going to be several, several months out. What do I do? Now I need to understand, okay, I need to lock in that resilience. I need to tap into the resilience that I know I have or find ways that I can that I can mine that. Uh, through working with other people and and understanding it. And then the creativity is a big part of it. No matter how your company that you work for or the company that you're building is affected or the job you want to get into is affected, you're going to have to figure out some sort of creative way to reconfigure what you thought was going to happen. For instance, this book, I had a six-month book tour planned. I had been working on this for a year and a half. I had all kinds of ideas of where this was going. In 72 hours, my book tour was kaput uh, in March. So I had to, I mourned that. And I think it's okay to do. You have to cry. You have to mourn what was going to be, what will be, or what could have been. But then there is this coming back from that where the resilience comes in and then the creativity sets in. You need you need quiet to do that. You need space. If you don't have either one of those Headphones are really come in handy. And I mean that you need to find a way to give yourself space and time to think through things. And uh, you can save a lot of heartache, money, and time by taking out a day, a, two, a day or two, a week, or however, to actually come up with a plan rather than just reacting and just doing. I think about it as the you can't skip any of the steps. You you have to be sad, you have to grieve, then you have to go through a period of turmoil. And then you come through that into the creativity. Sure. And then you adjust for companies, maybe some of your portfolio companies that are right now just trying to keep the lights on. I've spoken with Out and Tech's executive director. And I know that one of their concerns is that that companies that have dedicated staff and resources for diversity and inclusion, um, those will be the first things that get cut if things yeah. get difficult. So I can curious, confirm. <laughs> tell me, tell me, what would you say to a tech company CEO who's considering cuts to the people team? Well, if you think about the 
creativity that, that I just talked about, that doesn't um, discriminate against like major, big, com- like major companies. You're going to need that creativity, not just today, not just tomorrow, but months and years into this. And a lot of that creativity is going to come from a diverse group of people. It's not going to come from uh, keeping a, a homogenous group with you. So I would say be very careful. And I'm saying this not as someone sitting on some perch and, and telling you what to do. I'm saying this as someone who just had to go through layoffs, someone who just had to cut salaries, someone who just had to make decisions and move savings around to make sure that we were in business. I did all of that while still thinking about diversity because I because I know that that is going to be an asset for me in the future as it is today. And so to cut that now is very, very short-sighted. It's okay to trim from every group and to kind of make that, but try to do so across the board and don't do so. Don't say, well, this is just an extra thing. Um, Your people are your most important asset. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Everyday Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the LinkedIn Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Arlen, I, I want to spend a little bit more time on your own personal professional journey. There is a quality to your approach to navigating your career, and this goes beyond tech. This looks at the, your music career beforehand um, that just appears to embody confidence. And as someone who would like to have more confidence in my day-to-day mm-hmm. life, I'm curious how you cultivate that. Yeah, I think I've always had some some degree of confidence. I, even as a young child, my mom tells these stories of me uh, walking into, sauntering into stores and telling people what they were going to do. Uh, but it, it has ebbed and flowed, and I definitely spent the second half of my 20s and the first half of my 30s being poorly treated by other people in, in career and in personal relationships. So I have a confidence about me that stems from being um from knowing my my value when it comes to my intellect and the, the, what I'm willing to do on execution. But it did take me a very long time to understand that about myself and the value. So it, it comes from understanding that we're all equal, like getting that kind of to get, put together, but just 
finding, figuring out we're all equal. Like I can have a conversation with Mark Cuban or Mark Andreessen, which I've had many times, and I don't feel like I'm talking to billionaires. I feel like I'm talking to these two guys who I have an opinion, they have an opinion, we're going to see where we meet in the middle. Because I believe we're all equal. We, we are all equal. And then it comes from the conviction of what you're asking for. Like, yeah. I, I try to be very focused and intentional in what I'm asking other people for. And if I know that it is right, for instance, the, the fund, I knew it was right that more underrepresented founders should be invested in. That was a fact to me. I had that conviction. So every single time I talked to someone about it, I was taking that with me. I was taking the stories of the people that I could reference with me. They needed to exist. And of course, many times over, this has been proven. And I try to do that with anything I go into with negotiation or anything else. I try to go into it with, do I really believe this? And if I, if I were, you know, on my deathbed, would I believe this and would I think this and, and have conviction? If the answer is yes, then I can do anything. I can, I can talk to you about anything. So Arlen Carmen, who is in the stream, has this question. Hi, Carmen. But I feel like it's really my question too, Carmen. This is a great question. How do you go about getting the right kind of attention and buy-in when you're the one being underestimated? What's your strategy? Do you insist or do you pass up the people underestimating you and move on? You do a little bit of both. It depends on what why you're doing it. Um, sometimes you have to insist because you, you have to stand your ground in that way. What, the way I think about there is that you're probably not going to even get your way when you do that insisting because you're, you're going to try to change someone's mind that they've been kind of settled in for years and years and years in one conversation or one, you know, outburst or whatever it turns out to be, be. You may not change their mind. You most likely won't. But what if what you do when you say that or when you insist is make it a little bit easier for the next person behind you who is in your position? What if that were the case? If you go into it thinking that, then it may very well be very worth it to have that conversation. You're not doing it for you necessarily in that moment for that immediate um, uh, outcome. You're doing it for the person or the people behind you who will have to ask those questions of that person and, and maybe moving the needle for them. And then on the other side of it, I see so many people, and I did this myself, I see so many people saying, I don't, I'm going to bypass you altogether. You're in my way. I say this all the time. I say help or get out of my way. And I mean it. Help me yeah. or get out of my way. And, and that's with people who have resources and who have the ability to help. I tell you what you're not going to do is, get, is stop me from getting what I want. Right. You, can, you can talk about it on the wall. You can say all you want. You can tweet about it with your little thumbs, but you're not going to get in my way to do it. You talk in that answer about the necessity of, of community and doing things sometimes that uh, maybe they will or maybe they won't benefit you, but they will benefit the person who comes along after you and keeping that in mind. And so I, I, I do want to bring us back to Out in Tech, which is part of the reason why we are here today. It is the primary reason why we first uh, sat down to do this. Yes. Um, it's a pretty powerful organization. Uh, you've spoken at their events before, and so have I. Why does a community like Out in Tech matter, especially Ooh. post-pandemic? I mean, I so I do recognize I am Black first, and then I'm gay. <laughs> you know, and then I'm queer and then I'm a woman. Though that's the order that I think about. Um, and I'm 39 
I I remember when I was I when I was 16 or so after I had been outed, like after my mom knew I was out, I pretty much was okay. And I said something in a class once where I wrote I wrote this story about coming out, and I kind of came out in the class through this through this story project that we had, and I got a lot of flack for it, and I was very nervous to talk about it, and I had to read it out loud to the class. And, you know, people kind of, some people laughed, some people didn't say anything, some people were like clapping, whatever. But I knew some people didn't like it. Fast forward 10, 15 years later, this was when I was 16. Fast forward 10, 15 years later, I get a message on Facebook from uh, someone who was in that class when I read that out. And to me, she had always been like the girl next door, all American. She was an athlete. Very smart, very blonde, very Texan, you know, where I was living. And I thought, you know, she is what she is. She's dating this guy. She is what she is. She told me she was gay and that by hearing me, she couldn't make a sound. She couldn't cry. She couldn't say anything to me. She couldn't even move her face to make a reaction. But by hearing me tell my story that day in that class, I saved her from ending her life. Wow. Because she just knew she couldn't be gay and be okay in the way she, in her body, right? Yeah. And you just never know who you are affecting. And these types of uh, organizations aren't just for accolades or just for membership or just for conversation even. They can be a lifeline to some people because it was very recent and still today in a lot of ways where people were not accepted for being who they are in this way. And right. so it's it can be really important, especially when you're looking at your career. Maybe you've lost your job. Maybe you're, you feel uncertain. Maybe your company is not doing well. And you have these groups that you can you can feel a kinship with and go to. I feel so similar. I feel so privileged about the fact that in 2020, we have the opportunity to be so much more present in every aspect of who we are. And it's such a privilege that how can we not? I think about that all the time on the podcast. And I talk pretty openly about my wife or my son. And I don't even think about that. But in, in yeah. every breath that way, I'm, I'm coming out. I'm just, I'm being who I am. And every once in a while, more than every once in a while, I'll get a note from somebody listening who says, oh, I listen because of that, because I feel seen when I hear that. Even though mm. the thing I'm interested in is tech or careers, I feel seen when I see someone who sounds and looks like me. That's right. And Arlen, that is what you do for our community. It's what you do as a leader in tech. It's what you do as a founder and an investor. And it's what you do with your book. We're really excited for it and really hoping that it has a great launch. Me too. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. So that was Arlen Hamilton. Her book comes out on May 5th. It's called It's About Damn Time. My thanks to Arlen and to Out in Tech for supporting me and for making this conversation possible. And here at Hello Monday, we really do want to hear from you. This idea that Arlen has that she is underestimated and that itself is her superpower. It's a really cool idea. So I want to hear from you about how you've been underestimated and how you've managed to turn it around. What's your secret superpower? Join our conversation by emailing me at hellomonday at linkedin.com. 
You could also respond to it on my posts on LinkedIn using the hashtag HelloMonday. Also, starting on Wednesdays, I'm going to be holding office hours. If you follow me on LinkedIn or if you show up on my profile at 3 p.m. Eastern on Wednesday afternoon, you can find me live and we can chat. I'd really love to see you there. If you like our show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. It takes two seconds and it helps new listeners find us. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show is produced by Sarah Storm and Madison Schaefer. Joe DiGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Iriando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is our technical director. Maya Mangini, Victoria Taylor, Michaela Greer, and Juliette Farrow invest in this show every week. Our music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. You also heard music from Poddington Bear. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. Stay home if you can, and I'll see you next Monday. Thanks for listening. Can we bring up that real cool Fast Company magazine? Uh, yeah. So this is Arlen. Hi. Thanks for having How, me. How are you? I'm good. I miss that hair from that cover. I have Rona hair, so I miss that. It's very shiny and straight. Yeah, well, the earphones help a lot with Rona hair. I'll tell you that much. Uh, people asked if I didn't want to wear them, and I was like, no, no, we, we need the headphones. <laughs>